way you don't make too much noise when you shut it down. Because oh. it might does Well now, hey. Says I'm live. So, we have a few people in the, the live chat already. We have Crypto Alchemist. We have Nick of Time. Shadow 611. Ting Ting Shiny. Cole Brady. Darcy Edmonds. B. Nickel. Kevin O'Brien and Brian Evans. Old Gaffer's here. And I guess I'm using my FM voice. I guess I should look at the camera, right? You guys can hear me good, right? Give me an audio check from the live chat. Live chat works. Give me a give me a sound check in the live chat. Can you guys hear me? Testing. Okay, good. Thank you, B Nickel. Thank you. Well, today I'm very excited. We have our good friend Dr. Joseph Farrell, and um, we're gonna we're gonna discuss. I think um, what is some just some interesting stuff back on our transtemporal cosmic uh, milieu of topics. Yeah, I, I hope you're getting the the idea. You're you're you know getting the concept that this is almost. I don't want to say unified theory. But you know how people are always looking for a unified theory, whether they should or not, whether it applies or not. But it may not be a unified theory, but this transtemporal cosmic technology can do multiple things that are extraordinary. Okay. So um, I'm here with a little bit of energy with our, our friend. Cardinal Sin there on the mug. A toast to uh, Cardinal Sin. And um, remember, here's my time travel novel. You can get it at WalterBosley.com. You don't want to miss this. And without further ado, I'm going to bring in our friend. Uh-oh. Okay, there. He's back. He's back. So I'm going to bring in our friend Joseph Farrell. Joseph Farrell, how are you today? Uh, having internet connectivity <laughs> problems, believe it, just as we get started, mm. of course, naturally. You well, know, yes. it's it's odd because Dark Journalist has been having uh, connectivity issues. I've been having connectivity issues, and now that someone is screwing with the internet and um anyway i'm fine how are you <laughs> good 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 i you know what we're talking about things people don't want us to talk about um True. i'm not going to go into it here but um i had what i'm pretty sure is one of those um uh incidents uh, in the last few days mm -hmm. um somebody uh you know they don't want you talking about certain things and uh, they let it be known they find a way and and uh, trying to mess with the ability to get out to the audience to the public yep. is one of those ways but um, today um, I was I was thinking about it for a few days there um, as the title of the show says transtemporal cosmic communication it got me to thinking um, you know uh, 
my first question to you would be, I have two questions to start this off. My first question would be, um, what do you think about the idea that um, any kind of what we would call radio communication through um, uh, our, uh, our, our technology, you know, our communications technology, if we've received any kind of messages, would it be possible to receive it again, transtemporal, you know, across space and time? I mean, what, what do you think about the idea that the, uh, for instance, the wow signal, the legendary right. wow signal, um, you know, in your mind, what would the implications of the possibilities, what would you think about if that was coming from uh, the future or the past? Well, it, it, first of all, all communication takes place in time. What you're, what you're suggesting is that there is a significant transference of information uh, that sort of skips around time, you know, from a hundred years in the future to now, just like right. that. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, Walter, um, about 20 to 30 minutes before, uh, I got your link for the show, someone emailed me a scientific paper mm -hmm. and I want to read, I haven't read oh, this yet. Do it. But I want to read you the title of this paper, and then I'll read the abstract. The abstract's only about, um, I think, a paragraph or so long. Mm -hmm. But the abstract itself is interesting reading because basically, from the I haven't read the paper, but basically from the sound of the abstract, is somebody out there is already thinking about this stuff. Hmm. and uh, has reached certain very interesting conclusions. So here we go. Uh, this is, incidentally, this is from the National Library of Medicine that this paper was found and forwarded okay. to me. The paper is, is published and dated September 15th, 2021, so just a couple of years ago. And I want you to listen to the title of this thing. Temporal teleportation with pseudo-density operators. Subtitle, how dynamics. Now, please understand, when, when they use the term dynamics here, folks, what they're talking about is basically everything. In other words, how all physical systems emerges from temporal entanglement. <laughs> okay. Now, if that's not enough, here's the abstract quote. We show that by using temporal quantum correlations as expressed by pseudo-density operators, it is possible to recover formally the standard quantum dynamical evolution as a sequence of teleportations in time. We demonstrate that any completely positive mm -hmm. evolution can be formally reconstructed by teleportation with different temporally correlated states. This provides a different interpretation of maximally correlated, correlated pseudo-density operators as resources to induce quantum time evolution. Furthermore, we note that the possibility of this protocol stems from a strict formal correspondence 
between spatial and temporal entanglement in quantum theory. We proceed to demonstrate experimentally this correspondence by showing a multipartite violation of generalized temporal and spatial Bell inequalities. By the way, the Bell inequalities, uh, John Stuart Bell was, was the physicist that came up with the idea of non-locality. Okay, so this is what the general area they're talking about there. Spatial Bell inequalities and verifying agreement with theoretical predictions to a high degree of accuracy in high-quality photon qubits. And that's the abstract. <laughs> now, that's a whopper, folks. Well, and, <laughs> and this is coming from a medical perspective journal. Yeah. Okay. You know what comes to my mind? Here's what I think someone's trying to do there. Uh, Here's what they're trying to do, but with the human body. Right. You know how on your, well, yeah, but here's what they're trying to do. You know how when your computer gets an issue, whether it's a virus, let's say a virus, and you go in there under safe mode and you bring it back to a point right. prior to where the virus hit, right. to where the computer was healthy. This is what they're trying to do with the human system using to to maybe to well, maybe goes, it, link it, back to the part in your body before you got the disease. It goes further, Walter, much further, because oh. if you if you look at certain papers in in uh, quantum biophysics, they have already been uh, and and you know I've been saying something similar to this for years, but they've they've been saying essentially that for life to occur at all, there has to be a, a basis of life in quantum entanglement. In other words, what holds organisms together is the phenomenon of, of non-locality and quantum tunneling. That's, that's what holds everything together. So there is there's a bio you know there's a biophysics basis to all of this uh that's becoming more and more apparent but i just thought that paper you know would be right up your alley given today that's <laughs> you know and like i say i haven't read the paper but when i read the abstract i just thought holy crap i mean my <laughs> gosh think about um uh uh, uh surgery yes. could be something that is eliminated the need for surgery because you know, or or it could make surgery even more precise when surgery has to be done, bring that much more precision. But you could, I mean, we're getting closer every day to the diagnostic bed on the right. Starship Enterprise. Right. I mean, this is, you know, um, yeah. that that's that's something, and that's well, a serious source. You know, a diagnostic um, bed like that would have to be would have to be reading the quantum signatures of, of you know, of your body and mm -hmm. doing so on a kind of a cell by cell basis. And again, the the signatures that they're probably reading are all going to be harmonic in nature. So, yeah. you know, we're we're constantly going back to the few basic concepts. But uh, I, I think. I think the idea of, of electrodynamics emerging from mm -hmm. a chain of entangled quantum temporal states is, is, is rather breathtaking. Yeah. yeah. 
to put it mildly. It, it makes you wonder what kind of stuff has been going on in labs that have brought them to that language in a paper. Bingo, bingo. And for, yeah. you know, you know, here's where you raise, Walter, such a hugely important point. I really hope people were paying attention to what you just said. Because what you just said is that this paper is out there and they let it out there and it has such gallopingly obvious national security implications that yep. to let it out there is to me an indicator that you know where they're actually at is much yes. further down the road than, than, yep. than yep. this abstract that rule of thumb always applies, yeah. just yeah. like with aircraft. We know yeah. that if they say this aircraft has a ceiling of such and such and this capability right. and this reach, you can always expect it to be higher, farther, right. faster yeah. than what they're telling you. You know, yeah. they've always and that applies to the aircraft they're telling you about. You can right. also assume that there's one you don't know about sure. that's way beyond that. And right. so that language tells me that. There's been some serious breakthroughs in this. Probably, yeah. Given given everything else that that you know, I've seen in the last ten to fifteen years in terms of physics papers, you know the the acoustic metamaterials that resemble miniature singularities. You know that that to me I thought was too out there way back when I wrote the Giza Death Star series, and now they're talking about it openly. Uh, yeah. The idea that, you know, we we have uh, all of this stuff concerning invisibility that's coming out now, all, you know, on and on we could go. Um, I, I, I'm no longer ready to, to write off anything anymore, given what I've seen. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, okay, on the, on the issue of the communication aspect okay. of this um remember a few years back when uh there was talk of these um clay cylinders that had been found that allegedly when they put a phonograph or whatever needle to it that they claimed that the sounds from 400 years ago or whatever it was yes. um had been embedded in these cylinders yes. and then we don't hear anymore about that right. and whenever something disappears like that just like the whole thing about during the 50s there were open source articles on anti-gravity tech and then right. by 1958 it suddenly disappears there's a lid on it right. you know i'm wondering if um they've done something like that with some type of uh you know we're always talking about some type of technology, but you know, I wonder if um, if 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 they've been able to capture audio of <laughs> the past off of objects that were there at the, that time, or I, I strongly suspect that they have, mm -hmm. because just on just on a simple analog basis, all you would mm -hmm. require would be something with a semi-permeable surface mm -hmm. 
that was capable of recording subtle sound vibrations, and then it undergoes a phase transition and solidifies, and you've captured, you know, just like a record player, a vinyl record player. You've got, you've got that. And there was, if you recall, uh, Walter, there was a movie with Eric Roberts about this idea, but applied in a psychic sense called mm -hmm. sensation. Hmm. Okay. where he is a professor trying to recover a a uh, a murder that occurred through sound recordings in the ordinary objects in some lady's apartment so okay. the idea okay. that you yeah the idea it's it's not a well-known movie uh it's actually one of his better movies but i think the idea that you're talking about probably is something that again uh an agency like the diabolically apocalyptic research projects agency or as we also like to call it darpa um <laughs> would be would be something right up their alley because sure. they're constantly looking for scientific ways to fulfill occult lore you know we've got the idea of psychometric objects you know mm -hmm. even crystals picking yeah. up subtle subtle impressions of the people around them it, well, it makes you rethink um yeah. actual ancient relics and stuff too yes. that seem to be oh was this just decorative or maybe they're recordings know. you know yeah yeah i you know i have no problem with the idea of psychometric objects uh or with the idea that crystals pick up the subtle biological imprints of the people that own them or are constantly in proximity with them and the reason why is again that we as as organisms our our very dna is an aperiodic crystal and crystals are always and constantly being grown in in response to their environment so at mm -hmm. a certain point it begins to make sense why you have all of these these doctrines and so on in esoteric lore because what they're really talking about ultimately is a kind of physics so yeah i don't have any I don't have any problem with it. What 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 the problem you and I would have with it would be more the what sort of technology would you develop yeah. to to do that? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting here that uh out there in, in your state of Nutty Fornia, which I certainly hope falls into the sea soon and <laughs> and <laughs> And spares all of my friends out there. Cowabunga! That you, yeah, that you guys, that you guys, you know, pull the pull the lot at that Sodom and Gomorrah routine. But, but anyway, um, no, I, I'm joking here, folks. I certainly don't hope California falls into the sea. I wish Sacramento would. Certain. Anyway. Sure, I was just going to say certain select areas. Yeah, certain yes. select areas. Get rid of those. <laughs> but anyway. Um, out there in, in California at um, at the University of California in San Diego, I think it was, or Davis, mm -hmm. somewhere down there, uh, there was a very famous professor, Dr. William Tiller. Yes. Who was the professor emeritus of materials science. And for those of you listening that, that are unfamiliar with Professor Tiller, he wrote a series of three books about experiments that he did while he was a professor there. Uh, and 
And quite literally, they are experiments in group intentionality. And can group intentionality alone demonstrably affect a physical system without any physical connection to it? And what he did is he had four people agree on a written out, please hear me now, on a written out intention that they mm -hmm. meditated about and they were trying to put that intention into a box okay mm -hmm. and the intention was that in the vicinity of this box a fruit fly a a fruit flies gestation period would change mm -hmm. and that the ph acidity level in water would change within a certain predictable degree that was statistically significant. So in other words, he spelled out, you know, all the necessary conditions. Well, lo and behold, the fruit flies gestation periods did change. And so yeah. did the pH levels in the water yeah. when placed in, in the vicinity or environment of this box. So there you have it, you know, is this thing picking up some sort of very subtle vibrations simply from the brain way you know what's going on here we don't know well you know um that's very key in successful remote viewing as well is the yes. written down intention yes. that's yes. where it all starts yeah well um, folks this is why they're in such a hurry to change and update the liturgies of the church what do you hmm. have in those old liturgies you have written out intentions that are centuries old and they are they are group intentions so you know this is this is an old old thing that we're talking about and and tiller is kind of taking it a step further anyway go ahead walter I didn't mean to... all right what you just said though is a form of of uh, the term that comes to my mind is and this is with the little s and a little m S and M. Um, sympathetic <laughs> magic. Sympathetic yeah. magic is really what you're talking about, affecting the field, right? Through wow. Well, no. you know, I I did a I did a webinar on my website, Walter, about mm -hmm. Dr. Tiller and about this research that he did. Uh, he he recently passed away, incidentally, folks. But um, one of the things I point out in the webinar is that what Dr. Tiller is really telling you is the same thing that medieval theologians were talking about when they wrote about sacraments. A sacrament has to have proper form, proper matter, and proper intention. That's the doctrine. <laughs> okay. The intention is what is spelled out in the prayers that you're saying or reciting when you're performing the sacrament. This so, is, other, yeah, it, it's to me, this is the part of, of um, uh, uh, theology that to me is the important part is, is when you describe what it is these things actually do effectively. Right. Yeah, that's what it's doing. You know, it's, 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 it's exactly the same thing that Tiller is doing in his research. What's he talking about? He's talking about proper form, proper matter, proper intention. So I do think that, you know, these ideas are very old. They're not new. Right. What they're telling us, I think, um, is that at some point there, there was a, 
uh, a long lost science or a long lost religion or a long lost philosophy behind it all. Because again, the ancient mind didn't make those nice, neat, modern, segmented, compartmental boxes between those three things. So I think, yeah, there's something going on here. And we're just, we're just now uh, getting back into this. And I, I hope people pick up on this. We have become obsessed in modern science with the effects of consciousness on physical systems and mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. There's a feedback loop. Um, but none of this, none of this would have made any sense, Walter, to a 19th century Victorian physicist. None of it. Right. You know, it, it really took quantum mechanics to bring this this consciousness business back into. And you're talking Maxwell versus Einstein. I'm, I'm talking. Well, I, not even Maxwell versus Einstein so much. I'm talking. Um, I'm talking Max Planck versus Isaac Newton. Ah, yes. <laughs> okay. okay. That yeah. would be a better way to put it. A better, better example. Yeah. Yeah, because because both Maxwell and Einstein are. You can make a case, particularly with Maxwell, believe it or not, are definitely observer based. But uh, it doesn't it really doesn't it doesn't snatch snatch on to physics like a barnacle until Max Planck and and even more importantly, Werner Heisenberg with with the uncertainty principle that that you cannot measure the position and momentum of an electron at the same time. Well, that means that prior to setting up an experiment, you are determining the outcome depending on what it is you're looking to measure. So the the results of the experiment are are to a certain extent not even physical. <laughs> they're, they're a result of your free will. Okay. okay. So you know it's wow. Yeah, that's a wow. You know that's what that's what so disturbed modern physicists at the beginning of the 20th century, particularly after Heisenberg announced the the uncertainty principle, because it was immediately apparent what the what the total logical philosophical end result of what he had just said was. So you know, <laughs> here we are, and what I'm trying to get at is we're just at the beginning, right? We're just at the beginning of something that you and I, Walter, you know, for, we've talked about this for years and years and years. You mm -hmm. and I have talked about the idea that the ancients had some sort of very sophisticated, very advanced knowledge of all of this stuff. Yeah. Case in point, astrology. Well, you, you read the Babylonian or Egyptian records on astrology, and they both tell you that, okay, we're getting all this stuff because we were taking observations over thousands of years. Well, right there, they've just told you that mm -hmm. it's a statistical science. Mm -hmm. And we're nowhere close to it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we're, we, mm, ours hasn't been going for thousands of years yet. No, you know, exactly. This, <laughs> this um, brings to mind the things you talk about you and Scott DeHart talk about in Grid of the Gods, for example, uh -huh. and uh -huh. and um, you talk about it in other books where the um, the uh, whether it be a temple, a pyramid, or a church, uh, even the medieval era, how uh -huh. these imply um, a lost technology. 
and how they could communicate. It's a facsimile of some type of communication stations Mm -hmm. uh, between the churches, the cathedrals, the temples, what have you. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, I find that I find that really fascinating. I always have. Well, the idea is is not mine. It's coming out of a German uh, physicist engineer by the name of Dr. Constantine Meil. Uh, okay. I wrote I wrote about his ideas in Babylon's Banksters. Yes, but he had the idea, and I think he's correct. By the way, and, and he's he's another one of these uh, nutty guys that looks at things and, and you know like. <laughs> like Chris Dunn and looks at things with an engineer's eye and says, Oh, this is a radio optical cavity. Yeah. Uh, because he was, he was looking at, at ancient temples and particularly the Pantheon in Rome. Yes. And uh, concluding, Oh, this, you know, this has all the characteristics of a radio cavity. <laughs> I, I mean, you, uh, uh, you've, you've been there, right? The Pantheon. The Pan- right? No, I have not been to the Pantheon. Oh, I have. And it's, now that we're talking it's about creepy. the dome one with the hole in the top yeah. and the all the yeah. square, yeah, yes. it I, I swear, it's like looking the first time at Puma Punku when you're there. I yeah. walk into the Pantheon. I'm like, this is not something from what we would think from ancient Rome as amazing as they were engineering wise. You stand in there and you're like, this is just so what we Weird. would call modern. Yeah, that what the heck was this? What and were mile, they doing? And Mile thinks it was radio well, optic. He he thinks it was a radio resonant cavity, and moreover mm-hmm. points out the resemblance of the Pantheon to a British magnetron that they would use in their radar sets. So, in other words, the whole thing is designed like a great big analog magnetron. <laughs> so, which is interesting to me. And once you get to that point. Uh, you know, I, I took off from that in some of my private notebooks. I, I had, you know, I play the pipe organ. I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I've been transfixed with the instrument ever since I was a boy. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, if you look at the typical cruciform shape of, of a Western cathedral or big church yeah. or what have mm-hmm. you, what you're looking at is a three-dimensional analog of a tesseract. And a tesseract is a four-dimensional hypercube. Yes, <laughs> okay. indeed. Yes, indeed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, it, wow. Now, <laughs> now, okay. now what? Now what are we doing with these gigantic instruments that can quite literally are so loud and powerful enough that they can shake that whole building? Yeah. And the ground outside it, or the ground that it's on. Well, you're doing, in my opinion, you're doing a heck of a lot more than just making people have goosebumps because, you know, that's the physical effect of playing those instruments. You're also modulating information into the earth. So in other words, you could use that building to send simple telegraphic signals by simple radio telegraphy. Mm -hmm. And Mile points out that, okay... Maybe this explains why you have those curious statements in the Roman classical authors, Juvenal, Cicero, you know, all these people, Seneca, who say things like, uh, General so-and-so sent to the emperor for instruction and received his reply the next day. 
Okay, well, General So-and-so happens to be over in the Crimean Peninsula, and of course, <laughs> you know, and, and the emperor is in Rome, you know, okay, and, I, you know, I'm sorry, but the Roman semaphore fire system didn't work that quickly. Yeah, and, and, and runners aren't and fast runners enough. And runners aren't fast enough to do that, yeah. So, wow. You know, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I think... I think it's entirely possible that these people know a heck of a lot more than they've let on, you know, throughout history. There's something else going on. And it makes, you know, Miles, Miles' solution to this, Walter, is really brilliant. Because if they're using simple radio telegraphy to communicate, in other words, Morse code, pulses. Sure. You need a membrane that's sensitive enough to pick up those pulses. Okay. Entrails. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. We're, we're, we're the priests. We know how to read these entrails. And the oracle says, <laughs> you know, so it becomes reading the entrails. In other words, reading the pulses in the membrane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, they're it, the techs. Yeah, they're the techs, they're the technicians. The techs, right, they're the techs. It's the trade secret. <laughs> they're the guy, if you're, you know, go watch one of them World War II movies or any submarine warfare movie. They're Thank the you. guy sitting there in front of the screen, Yeah, you know, and uh -huh. the captain's always saying, what do you got? What do you got? Hey, sir, this, that, and the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on. So this leads me to... Okay. A thought that I had that I mentioned about something. If if they, you know, the all there's always the they, if they in ancient times were doing that with the temples and and stuff, let's bring it up into our modern context. Um, as you know, I have mentioned um because it's going on 25 more than 25 years ago that I one of those things I heard tell when I was in the Air Force mm -hmm. is that um in the southwestern United States, there is a huge phase conjugate mirror. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. And that, this is what I was told, not in a briefing, so I'm not breaking any laws here. Um, as far as I know, if someone knocks on my door and calls me by the first name that I haven't We'll heard know what happened Captain, to you. Walter. Yeah, Captain, <laughs> Captain, we need to speak to you. Oh, shit. Um, anyway, uh, I was told that the images, some of the images, those amazing images that were credited to Hubble were actually mm -hmm. captured by this phase, by phase conjugate, conjugate mirror. mirror on the ground. Now, mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. here's what I'm wondering. Could this thing actually also be an, a, a communications device? I wonder. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, okay, let's, let's back up. Whatever. Let's back up and explain to people what Walter's talking about. A phase mm -hmm. conjugate mirror mm -hmm. is what began to be talked about and developed in this country during the Reagan era in response to his Star Wars program. And it, as far as I'm concerned, I think the Soviets were onto this way ahead of us. Uh, in terms of uh, because I write about I write about the Soviet radar experiments on on nonlinear materials after World War II mm -hmm. being based on captured Nazi radar 
scientists that the Soviets acquired. And the Nazis discovered, in my opinion, discover, and, and Tom Bearden uh, has written about this, and he's the one I'm getting it from. Tom Bearden mentions that phase conjugation was something the Nazis discovered during the war with their radar experiments. So what is phase conjugation? Phase conjugation, to, to make a very simple illustration of it, would be in order to make a laser weapon work in the atmosphere, you have to account for the dispersion of the beam mm -hmm. due to the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So what phase conjugation does is it takes, so to speak, a picture of the atmosphere, it shines a beam through the atmosphere, takes a picture of the distortion, mm -hmm. and then re does a 180-degree out-of-phase flip of that distortion so that when you sign you you send a beam through the distorted picture mm -hmm. that's out of phase in other words you're conjugating the phase of the waves going through the atmosphere you're simply reverse phasing them that allows the beam to retain its coherence over a much greater distance right okay that's that's phase conjugation Oversimplified and in a nutshell. Now, the telescope that I think you were probably that you were probably hearing about was a an optical phase conjugate mirror at Kirkland yes. Air Force Base in Yes, it was. Okay, I was I was being vague. Indeed, uh, it is. Okay, well, <laughs> Kirtland Air Force Base. Sorry to let that cat out of the bag, guys. But oops, <laughs> oops, it's a little too late now. But, but anyway, um, the the telescope at Kirkland mm -hmm. was the very earliest phase conjugate mirrors that this government, I'm not even getting to the Soviets yet, that mm -hmm. this government ran were, mm -hmm. were permeable solid membranes of a mirrored surface on little springs. Yes. Yep. And the springs would adjust yep. the surface of the mirror just slightly yep. enough in response to this atmospheric picture so that beams of light would be reflected back through it without the distortions, normal distortions caused by the atmosphere. And all this was being run by computer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's that was kind of the Mark I phase conjugate mirror. Mm -hmm. And there are famous pictures of lasers being shot through this columnized phase conjugate mirror from Kirkland Air Force Base. Uh, and it was in connection with uh, what's his name in the UFO case uh, that your friend Greg Bishop wrote a book about. Oh, Paul um, Benowitz. And oh, Paul by the Benowitz, way, I, yes. I was told the one I was told about had a diameter of a mile. Okay. That would make sense to me, and if that's the case, then it sounds to me like what they've what they what they've done is they've turned the very large array into a phase conjugate mirror. That's what it sounds like to me. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the the interesting thing about the Mark II versions of these phase conjugate mirrors, mm -hmm. the the Mark II versions do not require the analog hard service. The, the mirror itself becomes an optical cavity 
that is made out of nonlinear materials, which reflects the waves. And the nonlinear materials, folks, are things like plasmas, or in the case of the World War II German radar experiments, what the Germans discovered was they embedded little tiny spheres of metal in rubber, and the tiny spheres of metal were resonant to the frequencies of allied radar. So all allied radar sets and their known frequencies were resonant to these little balls that the Germans were impressing in rubber. And then they would take that rubber and and coat the snorkels on their U-boats with this rubberized stuff so that the snorkels would not return a radar signal to allied radar sets and ships and airplanes. And the U-boat was virtually undetectable. But could it pick up allied signals? Oh, yes, absolutely. And this is like this is like an early primitive tempest. The tempest technology that reads vibrations on glass. This is this is the earliest radar stealth technology. It's 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 the German it's the early Nazi equivalent to electrochromatic paint. Okay. Oh, the interesting th- yeah. yeah, well, there's another one for you folks. But the interesting mm-hmm. thing is the Germans, you know, being Germans, they, they test everything mm-hmm. to death. What they decided to do was test this material by wave mixing a bunch of radar waves at different frequency on the same material at the same time. And what they got in response was this material with the rubber, the the metallic spheres are the linear material, but the rubber is the nonlinear matrix in which the linear material is embedded. Does that sound like quartz crystals and granite, folks? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Uh-huh. The, the light bulb just <laughs> aha the light bulb just goes off and what the germans got by doing this was the wave that was beamed on the material was phase conjugated and that means cohered and reflected back on their radar sets and blew their radar sets out oh, oh. yeah oh wow and this was this was an experiment supposedly that was done in, in March of 1945, right towards the end of the war, and mm. the so and the Soviets scooped up all these radar guys. Uh, so yeah, there's there's an aspect of phase conjugation, in other words, that involves nonlinear materials as the cavity, as the medium which takes this phase conjugate picture, and that's the point I'm trying to get at. And lo and behold, the two best nonlinear materials that we know of are rock, things Mm -hmm. like granite, limestone, Mm -hmm. that have a linear material embedded in the matrix, or plasma. (laughs) Okay. Ding, ding, ding. Now, on the rocket part, on the granite part, Mm -hmm. we're talking about earlier about um, uh, sound being embedded in the clay cylinders right. and the surfaces of other things. So Precisely. I I could see, you know, a team of, uh, you know, uh, Office of Naval Research guys uh, going to the Yucatan and aiming 
their devices at the old pyramids sure. and actually picking up the audio of a ritual done 500 years prior. Ding, ding, ding. And there we had Sylvanus Morley and the ONI crawling uh, all over. They were archaeologists. Uh, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> ding, ding, wow. ding. Wow. There's a reason they've been doing this stuff, folks, and it has nothing to do with the kind of physics that we learned in junior high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now I want to go back and look, for example, as I mentioned, Sylvanus Morley. I want to go back and look close at the team, teams of agents and people that mm -hmm. were out there okay. um, and, and maybe look at their specialties and see if we can get a clue that they, they were, they had figured this out and were, were, you know, pre-World War II, of course. But uh -huh. then I want to see if there was any change in what archaeologists were doing in these places <laughs> after March of 1945, after the end of the war when, you know, and, and particularly Russian archaeologists. Russian archaeologists after they captured what you just said at the end of the war. Uh, wow. It's it's not very well known. You can you can go online and find this stuff if you are very patient and persistent with the search. But the Soviet Union did precisely what you are talking about. Hmm. Okay. Uh, in fact, what Stalin did. Uh, this this is something that Bearden. Uh, has written about, and he's done this in connection with his writing about phase conjugate mirrors. What Stalin did, according to Bearden, was that he told the Soviet Academy of Sciences to go out and scour every Western scientific journal that they could and pull out anything that hinted at the possibility of being able to do an end run around American post-war nuclear superiority. Okay. In other words, what Stalin was telling the Soviet Academy of Sciences to do was look for the anomalous that could be turned into a strategic weapons advantage in terms of weapons technology. And they did this, according to Bearden. And in particular, they, they pulled out, and Bearden talks about these three papers a great deal in his writings, and I have accordingly done the same. There are two papers by the American physicist Barrus, B-A-R-U-S. But much more importantly, there is a paper by the British physicist E.T. Whitaker, that was published in 1905, same year as Special Relativity, in the German journal Mathematische Annalen. And that paper is called On the Partial Differential Equations of Mathematical Physics. And folks, <laughs> all I can tell you is, even if you're not mathematically inclined, go read the paper, particularly its ending. Because Whitaker, by the way, Whitaker's not a slouch. He was a well-known, world-respected 
mathematical physicist. It's just that Einstein writing with special relativity later that year kind of stole the thunder. But the real thunder is Whitaker's paper <laughs> because in it, he argues the case mathematically and concludes that gravity is a harmonic phenomenon and subject to harmonic analysis. And, you know, all you need, that's all you need right there to understand the significance of, of Whitaker's work. Yeah, and, and when you look at geomorphology with the telluric perspective, that doesn't surprise you at all. No, it doesn't, uh, because, because again, crystals are what? They're grown in response to the gravitational yeah. electromagnetic environment in which they're grown. But here's the other half of what the Soviets did, and this is the part that you can go find online. Apparently, at the same time that Stalin was, you know, basically applying the whip to the Soviet Academy of Sciences, go out and find something brilliant. Um, they were sponsoring, just as the Nazis had done, a lot of archaeological expeditions around the world. Mm -hmm. And they were doing so in the very same general areas that the Nazis did. So I think what has happened, Walter, is that the Soviets managed somehow to get their hands on some of the archives of the Anand Erba and decided mm -hmm. that, you know, this was worth pursuing and, and started to go out and pursue it. I think it's very likely that at some later time, probably the late, uh, late 50s, early 60s, the Soviets had come to the conclusion that these things that they were pursuing as more or less separate tracks were somehow connected. Uh, okay. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of the work of Nikolai Kozarev and uh, his experiments with torsion waves and so on, because again, I you know I wrote about Dr. Kozarev. The thing I think really brought this home to the Russians was when Khrushchev lit off the the Tsar bomb, that 57 megaton <laughs> monster hydrogen bomb. Yeah. Uh, I think I think the Soviets were surprised themselves by the yields that they got out of that thing and that Kozarev was brought in to explain it. Hmm. Uh, and I think, I think that was, I think that was the beginning for them of, Hey, these things are gating energy from something else. And we better dang well find out what it is. Um, what came to my mind mm -hmm. uh, a, a couple of moments ago, uh, involves um this is kind of jumping tracks it's sorry it's the way my head works um you have written about and discussed um we're going in a context of what uh, somebody expects is on its way to our world you know the uh, nasa and whoever what they know is on the moon and mars and okay. you've talked about you've referred to them as the cousins who may be oh, okay. returning okay? okay now here's something that i just uh, that just came to mind. I, I doubt I'm the first to think about this, but I wonder if somebody out there who um, they hear think is on it is on their way back to our world. What mm -hmm. we would say is back because maybe they've been here before. Okay. 
how do we know that what they're picking up, let's say it's a signal. Let's mm -hmm. say for hypothetical that the reason they believe this is they picked up a signal. Mm -hmm. What if actually that signal was sent long ago mm -hmm. and it was the signal of when they were on their way here the first time? Mm -hmm. And we're just now picking it up because you know, they, that's how light, that's how, mm -hmm. you know, some people have pointed out, and I think there's something to this. We go out there, we look at the stars, half of those stars could actually no longer exist now right. in our present time. And we're right. just seeing the light reaches what I wonder if it's the same for, you know, possibly uh, signals that are popped up. Well, if, if, Picked if up. the signals that you're talking about are, are standard electromagnetic signals. Yeah. Ah, yes. Um, okay. Because, you know, there's that velocity of light speed limit. and But the problem is, the problem is, is that the velocity of light in terms of the scale of the universe is like trying to rely on the Pony Express mm -hmm. for modern day communications. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's just antiquated. It's slow. Um, the kind of signals that I think any civilization like that is going to use are going to be signals within the medium itself. In other words, they're going to be longitudinal oh. pulses in the medium. Okay. Why? Because a longitudinal pulse is going to travel much faster okay. than an electromagnetic Hertz wave. Again. So, so would we receive this, say, at the poles? <laughs> Would the poles be a good place to set up the receiver? Possibly, yes. You're gonna the the resonator in in that case has got to be the entire planet. We're talking okay, wait about a the Tesla system. Okay, okay, okay. Hold on. We've heard stories about Antarctica. Yes. We've all heard stories. I heard ding, them ding, in the, ding. the mid '90s about a giant hole. Mm -hmm. Okay, and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Go back. To what you said about um, uh, 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 the phase conjugate in a, a resonant plasma surface. What if at Antarctica, what they found is some type of ancient receiver in this hole, uh, they put a plasma surface or figured out how to turn this on and what they're receiving, what the big secret of Antarctica is, is that it, it, there's a receiver down there, an ancient receiver. It's the planet. And I'll tell you why. And I'm not I'm not saying you're not on to something. I'm just gonna mm -hmm. I'm just gonna put a curveball on it. Okay. okay. Um, you recall the stories about Admiral Byrd and all the people that think that Admiral Byrd found a a hole at the pole and discovered right. that the earth was hollow, and that's really what they're keeping secret. Okay. Right. Yeah, we've all heard that. Yeah. We've all heard that. Now, what if there was some truth to it? Let's just take the whole at face value. And by the way, folks, please don't go off the deep end here. I am right. not saying that there is an actual hole there. But let's say there was. <laughs> okay. For conversation's sake. For conversation's sake. Well, what do you what does that make planet Earth? If the planet Earth is hollow and it has a hole at one end of it. That makes the entire planet a gigantic 
Helmholtz resonator. A gigantic pantheon, or as. Let me put it again. A gigantic Helmholtz resonator, such as Chris Dunn. Yes. Posited in the Giza power plant book. Okay. Oh, my God. I never thought about that when I was in Rome, standing inside that structure. That it's got I'm looking a hole at, in it. I'm looking at a model yes. of the hollow earth you're from the inside. At, you're looking at a Helmholtz resonator. Why is the hole? Because what happens when you blow sound across a hole? Play the flute, play the clarinet, play yeah. a pipe organ. You get a sound. Yeah, which is <laughs> okay. a signal. Which is a signal. You get a frequency. All right. Oh, this is good stuff. All right. <laughs> so if you're talking about a hole at the end of plant of the planet, you've got a gigantic Helmholtz resonator. In other words, it's an acoustic cavity. Now, let's fill in the hole. <laughs> okay. Let's mm -hmm. fill in the cavity. Mm -hmm. But let's make what we fill the cavity with of a completely different density than the outer crust of the planet. Mm -hmm. You still have a resonator. <laughs> okay. It's the medium and density of the materials. And the, the density will change the quality, but not the basic principle. Right. Okay. okay. So in other words, could they have discovered something that indicates that the planet itself was being used or utilized as a gigantic resonant cavity to longitudinal pulses in the medium? Answer, mm -hmm. yes. What do those pulses do? Well, they're certainly reliant on what we've already been talking about, and that's entanglement. This stuff is all connected. Um, and by the way, do I think, for those who might be thinking this in, in your listening audience, do I think there's a possibility that that big neutrino detector that they have in the ice down there has something to do with all of this? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. What would the effect of another smaller... Helmholtz resonator, say in orbit of the planet <laughs> that's a Helmholtz resonator. But what what possible effect could that have on the functionality of that planetary Helmholtz resonator? It would have an enormous effect. Mm. It would have an enormous effect. Which might explain why somebody parked it there in orbit. Which might explain why somebody parked it there in orbit. Yeah. You're what you're doing is you're you're doing what you're wave mixing you're modulating information into the local structure of space time and therefore it's always going to you're it's you're you're literally playing the solar system like a gigantic pipe organ yeah yeah with space and time with space and time the music oh. of the music of the spheres indeed indeed oh wow wow so, so you know, what goes through my mind is what and whom have we, if not directly communicated, what have we picked up that has actually been recorded in these mediums that, that, that 
you know, when we pinged, when we sent that ping to the moon that time in the early Mm -hmm. 60s, Mm -hmm. we heard that, oh, yeah, it rang like a bell. And then they quit talking about that. (laughs) You know, I wonder if they actually tuned in and listened to any recordings that have been embedded on the moon. For all we know, let's for fun, for conversation, say that the moon is a gigantic craft arc, you know, thing that moved through space and was parked here. Okay. You know, the civilization that did that could have left a recording of who they are, where they're, who they were, where they were from, you know, when they arrived, all of that, Uh all of that Uh could have been embedded in the granite, so to speak, the crystals or whatever of the moon itself. Right. And that could be, you know, just one of those secrets that they keep they keep from us regarding the moon. That could be, I don't know. You know, I wonder now of the little things they set up on the moon, what could they have set up that would have maybe clarified the well, signal? Well, let's talk about electroacoustic sonar. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You're talking about the ability to pick up subtle modulation of mm-hmm. of a longitudinal pulse in the medium. In other words, modulation I'm using here in the term of putting information on the radio wave. So you've got your carrier wave on the radio, and then you've got the information that's modulated into the radio signal that your radio receiver deconfigures and puts out through the speaker that you understand as a conversation. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the modulated information in your longitudinal waves might possibly be what they picked up on and why they're not talking about. Why? All you need to understand is that sound as a longitudinal pulse tends not to decompose or lose coherence in a medium nearly as fast as an electromagnetic wave. This is why you can hear things underwater for miles. Whale songs. Whale songs. Submarines being crushed. You know, I'm thinking of the the USS Thresher. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we have listening stations underwater for a reason, folks, because we can hear hundreds of miles away. Missing airliners from Indonesia that supposedly crash in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Where are the recordings? Yeah. So, in other words, during the war, during World War II, what were submarine crews told to do if they're underwater and they've got a British or a Japanese destroyer pinging sonar at them trying to find them? Be very quiet. Don't talk. Don't drop a screwdriver. Just shut up and be very quiet. Because the moment you hear a sound, they can target that sound. They know exactly where you are, exactly what depth and how far away you are. So could the moon be doing that? Yeah. Could pinging the moon have produced an echo that they did not expect to get. In other words, 
pinging the moon, was it really an echo reflection at all, or did that echo carry modulated information on it? And if it carried modulated information, yeah, you betcha, Walter, they're going to clamp down on that. <laughs> well, it, 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 yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, another question that comes to mind on this, um, when we're talking about people from other worlds, you know, you have to, you know, what language would they speak in? Would it be mathematics? Would it be something that they would feel like could be translated? Or, you know, that's that's okay. the question. How would you even know that it's a, well, there's ways to know you're, you're hearing a language without understanding the language. Right. There, there are. And, and every, every language that we know of, I, I suspect that the initial attempts to communicate would be mathematical. Yes. But let's, let's take a case in point. How do, how do signals intelligence people decrypt and decode encrypted messages, whether it's in Japanese or Russian, English, German, Swahili, what have you. Well, the easiest type of code is a simple substitution cipher. Okay. Those can be cracked rather easily, they discovered around the turn of the century, because with within every language, Certain letters take statistical prominence. In the English language, the frequency table of letters is E-T-O-A-N-R-I-S-H, and on it goes. So in other words, the most frequent letter in the English language is E. So you simply take the, the sure. number of occurrences of symbols and decrypt it that way. You simply crunch yeah. the statistics. That's all you have to do. In more complicated codes, you have the occurrence of certain words or certain phrases, and on and on we go. So I would suspect, Walter, that if you're communicating with some other entity that's not human, that is nonetheless using a language, the first thing that your, your people would tell you is, yes, you're listening to a language simply given the types of pattern that we're seeing in the statistics. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it would be very easy for them to do. Interestingly enough, there are claims out there that the National Security Agency did receive information like that at some point and has been attempting to decode it. I don't know how true they are. Uh, they've been around for about uh, 20 to 30 years. So take that in conjunction with what you said earlier about the wow signal and so on. It's been around yeah. for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, th this is all just, you know, it, it, it can be mind-blowing, but it is. What, it, what it can do is it gives you a different perspective on things that oh, yeah. you just didn't think in terms like that. Um, you know, now, uh, you know, for instance, uh, maybe now, um, think about it, ground radio, Mm -hmm. was the U.S. Navy was very fond of ground-based radio, which right. is basically, you know, stick your technology literally into the ground like Nikola Tesla yep. type stuff. Yep. So apply that, those concepts, give that to Morley and his O&I agents, let yep. them run all over the Yucatan and stick this stuff on these computers. 
Yep. What in the hell were they picking up? I wonder. You know, I well, I have if- to wonder too, and I think you're onto something there. What because the parameters that, that you're suggesting of what they're doing mm-hmm. indicates that they had some sort of prior knowledge and that they were testing something. Yeah. Uh, so I would, I would, I would guess that at some level with those experiments and, and those ex- expeditions, you've not only got O and I involved, but that you have, pardon me, you have agencies like DARPA, that you have defense contractors like SAIC mm-hmm. that do all this very bizarre, strange, you betcha. Uh, I, I don't think there's anything normal about what these people have been doing. I mean, heck, go back to Dr. Farouk Elbaz. Yes. And his cosmic ray experiments at Giza. You know, trying yeah. to find trying to find more internal structure in those two big pyramids. Why on earth would he think that cosmic rays were a more viable method? of doing that than standard radar tomography or particle rays or what have you. Well, there are certain reasons, but but what I'm getting at is that he thought out things in terms of the most viable and wild science that he could possibly apply to his experiment. And this is what I think you're dealing with with Morley. Um, staying on the theme of... Uh, 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 the 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 Yucatan and, and ancient Mexico, for example. Um, I'm wondering. We all know from a a, a magical perspective, dark mm-hmm. magic, black magic. Mm-hmm. You know, now I wonder what influence. And when I say influence, I mean actual physical material or whatever you want to call it. Influence um, that human emotion, specifically human terror mm-hmm. and shock mm-hmm. would have on a, a signal or, or what have you, a use of a pyramid in the way that we're discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me wonder, the the Aztecs and their sacrifices, mm-hmm. did they understand what we're talking about to some extent with these pyramids? And could the... the uh, uh, the human sacrifice have played some type of sympathetic magic mm-hmm. role in all this using these temples, you know, as, as a technology, um, mm-hmm. more than just shedding the blood for some, you know, no, I think so. God. I absolutely think so. I do. I absolutely think so. Um, you know, for many years and George Ann Hughes and I used to talk about this, very same idea many years ago on her programs on the bite show. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think quite literally that the intention of any sacrificial system, especially human sacrifice, mm-hmm. is to shock the medium. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, However, the problem ultimately is, and this is where I think there was massive miscalculation, the the medium, in the sense that it might represent God, cannot be shocked. Okay. 
insofar as the medium represents a component of creation, it can be. And there's the difference. So in other words, since we're drawing analogies, I think there is a a logic to sacrifice that becomes particularly apparent when you read the Vedic cosmological version of it. Mm -hmm. In the Vedic version, you have the idea that the cosmos itself arose out of a sacrifice. And later on in the development of the Brahmanic tradition, the idea of sacrifice then becomes a literal sacrifice that is used to gain the power or the control of the power of creation, which is to a certain extent a misreading of the original Vedic idea of sacrifice. And what do I mean by this? Well, let's draw an ex let's draw a simple analogy to parents with their child. Mm-hmm. The very idea of having a child is to a certain extent a sacrifice because for a great deal of their lives, they are sacrificing for the child. That doesn't mean they're, they're murdering their child, no. nor does it mean they're murdering themselves. Right. Okay, that's, that's the key. But there is real sacrifice there. It's when this idea of sacrifice becomes coupled with the notion of, okay, in order to do all this, we're going to kill the baby, you right. know, or we're going to kill ourselves to save the baby, you yeah. know, on and on it goes. Uh, it's, it's the confusion of the two ideas that I think really begins to operate and what we see happening so many times, not only in the Vedic culture, we see it in Egypt, we see it with the Greeks, we see it with the Romans, we see it with Carthage. The yeah, Carthage, mm -hmm. uh, the Old Testament Hebrews, we see it over and over and over and over. Uh, and, you know, the bottom line is none of this, none of this is really the original idea to, to begin with. Right. <laughs> you <know that>? And <laughs> you talk but, about, again, you talk about this, I think, in Grid of the Gods. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Do. Yeah. yeah, it's the idea that, that okay, we're gonna we're going and and it is a there is a diabolic logic to it. We are going to so and we see it playing out now. We're going to commit such acts of heinous barbarity that people are literally shocked into passivity, and that's usually the goal of the exercise to make you passive. Mm. Um. Unfortunately, B.B. Netanyahu is not the kind of person to sit on his butt and be passive, you know, as, as we're seeing right now. Well, uh, <laughs> all of this, what we're talking about now, um, brings to mind a couple of things. Um, the asteroid belt, as people have uh, yeah. uh, said that, that that's the remains of a destroyed world, for example. Yeah. Um, I think of Star Wars, the original film. When yes. uh, um, uh, Alderaan, Alderaan, well, I, I think of Alderaan is exploded, and I think of Obi Wan saying he feels the souls of a million souls screaming out. Yes. Um, 
you could almost look at when Tarkin destroys Alderaan with the Death Star, yes. that they're doing what we're talking about. The exactly. sacrifice of those millions of people on Alderaan is a magical act, so yes, to speak. Exactly. Yes, it is. And I wonder if that's what happened to that planet that is now the asteroid belt. If somebody, if that was an intentional, magical diabolic act. sacrifice, magical act on a cosmic scale. Could be. It could be. Mm. It absolutely could be. Because in a certain sense, if, if, if everything that we know, Walter, about those ancient texts describing that cosmic war is true, then look what happened. That one act left and imprinted a huge scar mm -hmm. on all human cultures. Yeah, the psyche just the right psyche there. just you know can't absorb a a an evil so monstrously large that it would do such a thing. Maybe that's. Same, oh, go well, ahead. At, well, at the same time, the mere act of doing that on such a scale has basically made the the similar act at smaller scales more possible mm -hmm. so in other words that act is a kind of initiation into a a culture and a culture of corruption and evil and murder so it was at the very minimum a an initiatory act once you you know stalin's old adage you know, the death of, of one or two people is, is a terrible tragedy. The death of a million or so is a statistic. Yeah. So you insulate yourself from normal human feeling. This is always the way it is. Yeah. I wonder if, um, if we're talking about what our super secret agencies could have learned about the forgotten the 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 ancient past through mm -hmm. recordings in granite crystals what have you okay that's what we're talking about mm -hmm. i wonder if if something the nsa got in that regard rec um, uh, maybe a a some type of recorded report right. you know left behind uh, ages ago by yeah. yeah a log that the civilization who did this who destroyed that planet or the civilization that witnessed it. I wonder if that. I wonder if that's what was briefed, for instance, to President Carter. That, as the lore goes, upset him so much that he that they presented to him this. This is a recording we picked up from one of the pyramids, literally with this technology, and mm -hmm. listen to it or read it, and you know, it it was just a complete shock that, oh my God, this was recorded hundred hundred thousand years ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. this is a real thing and mm -hmm. oh my god what's in it mm -hmm. you know um it it uh it, it just all of this discussion for me puts a new spin on what it is we might actually be doing with our space-based technology and our research well i think you're on to something there with that with that idea with that with that hypothesis i i like the hypothesis because it explains uh, it, it rationalizes in a very different way some of the, some of the problems that you and I have talked about, and you and other people have talked about. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other the other person I'm thinking of, in addition to President Carter, mm -hmm. and his response was was uh, Trump when uh, Judge Napolitano asked him why he mm. Trump did not declassify all of the Kennedy stuff, and Trump's right. response was. I, because I can't, you would not believe what's in there. So oh, it's man. almost it's almost as if there's something that is so off the charts, wild and weird. Yeah. Uh, that and and Kennedy was the president who was in a in a very material way the first one that was really pushing for us out into space. Yes, into you know, this technology. Yes. So it goes back to the whole argument of what was he actually going to reveal that somebody, they, well, this, under you no know, circumstances. You have, yeah, you have to wonder what, you know, Kennedy Kennedy's uh, overtures to the Soviet Union to mm. to have a joint moon mission. There, there I think, was... I, I honestly think, Walter, that at some point he managed to get something to Khrushchev mm -hmm. uh, and that it, it turned Mr. Khrushchev around mm -hmm. to the point where he was willing to, to seriously consider a joint moon mission with this country. Now, you know, for, for someone like Nikita Khrushchev to be thinking along those lines when he was diametrically. Yeah. You know, just not not in that camp at all right. prior to this. There had to have been some information that that upset him, quite literally. Yeah. Um, and Kennedy, you know, the, the other thing here, Walter, that since we're talking about uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Kennedy, mm -hmm. um, I honestly think, and I just wrote a blog today on my website about this idea, uh, I honestly think that this business of the Biden misadministration denying Secret Service coverage and protection to uh, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is of a piece with all of their attempts to, to get Trump on indictments. I think I think the same people are behind both efforts and for the same reason. In other words, these two things are tied together in some very, very deep way. Um, you've, you've got two outsiders. They're independently wealthy. Their families have known each other for years. Uh, and then you've got the strange, the strange connections on the fringes. Trump with Roy Cohn, Roy Cohn and McCarthy. Trump's McCarthy, uncle. Trump's uncle McCarthy being a friend of the Kennedy family and Bobby Kennedy Sr. being on McCarthy's staff. What the hell's going on here? Yeah. And I, you know, again, I think probably it's got something to do ultimately dig and scratch around long enough. I think it has something ultimately to do with space mm -hmm. and whatever it was that, that President Kennedy may have shared with uh, Nikita Khrushchev. Um, there, there is there is a much bigger picture going on here, and it has somebody in the deep state scared to death. Yeah, um, that's all I can think of. Well, it's it. it, it I I agree with you. I I think it ultimately does lead to space. 
Yep. It also it also leads to the truth of the ancient history yep. of this world. Yep. And uh who we are and yep. where various um uh, uh inputs into our DNA that we have today, where those various uh, inputs came from. Yep. Um and, and and yeah, it all comes down to who we are in the cosmos, what we are in the cosmos and to whoever else might be out there. And um, we are understanding this greater in, mm -hmm. in a greater way, I think, through what we're what we're learning through either these this idea of ancient knowledge or, or, or knowledge being recorded literally in ancient times that we're just now, when I say now, I mean, say in the last 150 years, able to decode, able to literally turn on and play, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, I do think that this has gone beyond um, just code. It's gone beyond just mathematical language. I, I do think that now, they are literally able, with some of this technology we're talking about, to aim it at one of these ancient pyramids or another object and actually hear a recorded voice. It's it's possible. And, and one of the things that, that I think would be the area to look at mm -hmm. is, is in the Giza Death Star Revisited, I, mm -hmm. I, again, talk about the importance of crystals and the idea that crystals are grown in response to the gravitational and electromagnetic environment that right. they're surrounded by. So that mm -hmm. a crystal, a quartz crystal, for example, grown on Earth and one grown in the near zero gravity of space are going to have very different types of lattice defects. Mm -hmm. So that with a sufficiently advanced science, you could literally read the lattice defects in a specific crystal and comprehend the environment that it was grown in mm -hmm. so that it becomes a kind of a recorder. So press that further mm -hmm. and you get the idea that, okay, it's recording very, very subtle stuff yeah. at a, at a subatomic level. And at that level, if you've got a technology and a science sufficiently advanced, you might exactly be able to do what you're talking about. Read it. Listen to it. Uh, see so, it. Go see back. It. Folks, if you haven't seen it, I saw it in the theater three times when it came out because at the time it was amazing. Go back and watch the 1978 Superman film with Christopher Reeve, the first one. And in oh, yeah. there, he's able not only to have recordings from his home planet on yeah. the crystals on he's the able crystal. to interact with them yes because the technology is such right. from krypton that these recordings you know uh, he's able you'll see you'll see and that's really that's a dramatic um uh, example of what we're talking about here right now but check it out this 1978 superman so and what's hey, krypton it's an exploded planet. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. Oh, that's right. The stuff trickles down the into stuff the stuff trickles down. Yeah, the psyche exactly. and the arts, right? That's why, yeah. folks. This is why I'm telling you: don't ignore when people like me write fiction. 
people like Joseph write fiction. We're, we're, there's stuff in here that, you know, in my opinion, is you real might be stuff. interested to know I'm writing this little fiction novel that I've told you about before that I might have you look at. Okay. Okay. Publish. I'm not done with it yet, but by the way, it does involve crystals. Ooh. <laughs> oh, well, that, that well, hey, um, do you have uh, some time to take questions from the sure. live chat? Yeah, sure. All righty. So I'm going to jump over to the live chat. Remember, folks, those of you who've been around, remind everybody who's maybe new, please put your comments and questions in all caps <coughs> if you want me to see them and address them. Otherwise, I'm going to assume, if it's not in all caps, that you're having a side conversation of your own. And uh, anyway, all caps, please. Uh, Brian Evans. Yes, Brian Evans. You're right. Like a crystal memory card. Yeah. And uh, Brian Evans says, and Stargate spaceships use crystals. Okay. Oh, the, data, the data crystals in Star Trek, on and on it goes. Yeah, so all is- of that, all of that. So if you have any questions for uh, our guest, Joseph Farrell, on this topic, please, this what we've been talking about today, um, throw them out there in the live chat. It usually takes a couple of seconds for it to show up, uh, you know, where um, where we can see it. Um, yeah, I, uh, uh, I, I'm going to go back and take another look at what Morley and them were. I it just, I'm intrigued now. Well, what, you um, know, since you're, since you're talking about crystal recording devices, I've another twist on this old theme is why do so many large gemstones seem to have curses attached to them? Oh, good you know, point. The hope, the hope diamond. You know, yeah, things like this. Um, it's it's another aspect of this. Maybe there is some sort of evil intention that's attached to. Them. I don't know. You know, hmm. That's that's intriguing in itself. That's really intriguing. Uh, Carla Struble asks, um, "Does the sun resonate at C, the chord C?" Oh, C you mean the chord. C chord. C H O R D. Yeah. Um now I don't know what the resonant frequency of the sun is. Uh a C major triad is actually three different notes. Mm-hmm. So the chord itself has three different frequencies that it will be resonant to. Um but the fundamental frequency, the note C itself, that gives rise to the other two overtones in the chord is what I think you'd have to pay attention to. And in all honesty, Carl, I don't know what the resonant frequency of the sun is. I, I just don't. Um, I can tell you that whatever the frequency is, it will have a fifth and a third harmonic overtone. In other words, it will produce a triad. It will produce a musical chord. Uh, you're just referring to fifth, third, uh-huh. musically. Yeah. My mind goes to, and think of Babylon's Banksters, my mind goes to Ohio has the fifth, third bank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well... Um, Again, the bankers have known ever since President Hoover and Edward Dewey and the 
foundation of the study of cycles. They, the bankers have known all about this stuff. That's why Mitsubishi Bank has representatives on the board of the foundation of cycles. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Let me uh, go to the next. My, my, my tech guru was adjusting. I, yes, I saw your tech guru over there. I okay. need a tech guru. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alcyon Bell asks, how would the demon in the ecker apply to this discussion? Oh, the ecker. Ecker is, yeah. e- is spelled E-K-U-R. Mm-hmm. Um, the demon in the ecker, again, uh, if the plasma life hypothesis is true, it applies to virtually every aspect of it. My question for you, uh, Alcyon, is what is the uh, demonstrative pronoun this in reference to um I, I i don't know what the this is i don't have i don't have an antecedent to it unless you mean the entire discussion if it's the yeah. entire discussion then yeah the the idea of plasma life being uh, a part of this means that plasma's biophysics has something to do with phase conjugation and therefore with harmonics and therefore with quantum entanglement and on and on and on we could go yeah absolutely um we ourselves we ourselves are we have two bodies quite literally we have this physical you know sack of water (laughs) that we think we live inside of and then we have surrounding us, we have quite literally what is a bioplasma dust cloud. And by the way, it extends out to about six feet from your from your water sack. Okay. Hmm. So there is literally a, another body of you that consists of all your deritus, all your little dusty things that constantly follow you around. And it's unique to you. So it's a little bioplasma cloud that you're inside of. That's interesting. Real that's, interesting. That's very interesting. Yep. D. Dorothy Papineau comments, prayer beads are used because they absorb the prayers. There's some intention yep. Yep. technology for you. Yeah. Uh, let's and they're see. Used, they're used to focus intention. Let's see. Uh, D. Light asks, is the Great Pyramid reparable? repairable uh if you mean can it be restored to its original function no because if you if you read at least chris dunn's or zechariah sitchin's or my presentation of the various versions of of the machine hypothesis and the weapon hypothesis is a subset of machine hypothesis uh, what in the name sense? Excuse me. We just had somebody, a shadow, walk up to my door. Uh oh, the shadow men. Oh, it's the UPS guy bringing you. Oh, okay. okay, I'm sorry. Um, uh, yeah. Um, if you if you look at the, those three versions of of the machine hypothesis, D, all three of us maintain that there are components of the structure that are missing and it's a fairly reasonable conclusion once you understand certain aspects of the great pyramid to come to that conclusion there are things missing from it 
not the least of which, of course, is the capstone on it, not the least of which are the missing casing stones on the Great Pyramid. So we know that there are components of the structure that are no longer there. So and, we, and something that was obviously inside the Grand Gallery. Obviously inside the Grand Gallery, right. So. so unless you can find those things or make exact copies of what they may have been, no, it, it will never be restored to its function. Yeah. Johnny Side asks, if they get a message, we talked about this earlier, but if they get a message from the pyramids, how could we understand them because they aren't in English or are they? I, I would say they're not in English, but um, we answered that earlier when we talked about how right. a linguistic would, right. and a, you know, a, a code reading linguistic linguist would, uh, right. would analyze that. Uh, Oswald Spengler, has Joseph come across the work of Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould regarding the mystical imperialism of Afghanistan, Fitzgerald dynasty legacy related to the JFK assassination? Never. No. I, I, whatever that is, it's entirely new to me. I've never heard of any Paul connection like that. Okay. Okay, that's interesting, Oswald. Thanks for especially for, for coming from someone with a name like a username like Oswald Spengler. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Evans, is there any way the monks had a hidden knowledge of mines and tunnels? Sure, oh, I you would. betcha. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, most of most of the sites in Europe, you know, that you're thinking of in connection with monasteries have have tunnel systems and it's it's fairly well known as it's it's an almost universal phenomenon at, at megalithic sites as well Absolutely. think of the pipes think of the pipes in an organ right yeah think of the pipes on an organ yeah think all those strange uh embedded cisterns in latin america or ireland you know it's it's they're all over the place yeah, like the round towers. Gypsy Moon asks, crystals in the ground of the pyramids as recording devices? More more actually, um, the medium, Gypsy Moon. The crystals would be the medium onto which right. the re record would be recorded. Um, one of the interesting things, Gypsy Moon, is that um, in the Grand Gallery of the Great Pyramid, Chris Dunn argued that there were banks of Helmholtz resonators in, that were inserted in the slots along the ramp inside the Grand Gallery. Um, Zechariah Sitchin, in his reconstruction of the texts that he was looking at in connection with the Great Pyramid, believed that those things in the Grand Gallery were crystals. Um, I kind of combined both hypotheses because Dunn is correct in that the Grand Gallery is obviously an acoustic chamber. Uh, and to me, you know, I can look at it and tell you it has characteristics in common with what's called a stopped pipe on a pipe organ. Okay. It has very similar features to that. Uh, so I... I think it's possible that you're dealing with resonators that were intended to be both optically and acoustically resonant at one and the same time, and therefore crystals. Could they have been therefore used as recording devices? Yeah, possibly. Possibly. Uh, Pepe Le Pew Pew 
asks, any idea on the crystal city being the mental structure of the mature human brain? That's an interesting concept. I, I don't know what the crystal city is that you're referring to. So so I'm going to go it, with Walter. I'll say that's an interesting guy. Yeah. Is, is it crystal city in Washington, D.C.? Or is it crystal city in Superman's um, Fortress of Solitude? I don't know. Uh, here we go. M&M Matthews, uh, I guess, is asking, uh, if the jewel from the Lucifer crown, from Lucifer's crown, may sure. actually have been uh, uh, a recording could have, you know. Oh, um, possibly. However, the, the question I have is, it, the problem I would have is that there's not just one jewel on Lucifer's crown if you're following the Old Testament uh, presentation. Maybe it's the one that fell out. Is what well, there are, there are nine crystals in Lucifer's crown. Yes. And when you compare those crystals to the 12 crystals of the 12 tribes of Israel on the high priest's ephod, mm -hmm. Lucifer is missing the entire third row. Oh, that's right. I've yeah. heard you talk about this. Yeah. 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 Johan Wolf. Johan, Johan Wolf asked, do you believe the Holy Grail of information uh, is regarding the threshold between material and spirit realms and how to navigate it? Um, if I'm understanding the question correctly, the, the thing that everybody's after is that is information regarding that point of surface contact between matter and and the incorporeal world. Um, by the way, that's us. That's the common what we, surface. That's what we humans are, the common surface. That's what yeah. we are. Um, uh, I, I would say that there is some sort of cosmological secret that we embody and embed. Um, it can never, ever be decoded or captured through mere science or mathematics or physics because it is of a theological and spiritual nature. Hmm. Okay. But once having said that, would knowing such things give a certain amount of uh, ability to influence either realm? Yes. It would. Um, but in order to do that, you'd have to overcome the great rift between the two. And that rift is quite literally death. Uh, there you go. So I would, I would caution any and all New Age Gnostic nuts out there. Do not dabble in this stuff. Because it is all too easy to be captured by things that can only get fixed by an exorcist. And trust ah. me, you don't want to go there. Hmm. Don't. True. True. Yeah, no, don't want to do that. Uh, no, yeah. um, the, the previous question and talking about, you know, the crystals information, what hmm. came to my mind was, I wonder 
um, if they're, t- let's be literal about the Emerald Tablet. I oh, wonder yeah. what could be what could have been recorded on that beyond the shopping list. You know that you have the uh, shopping list <laughs> that you've talked about. You know, yeah. Well, I I do think that there are. You know, the interesting thing, Walter, about esoteric lore is that so much of it does have to deal with crystals. Yeah. I mean, there's just the Emerald Tabit, the Sapphire Ring of Solomon, the Foundation Stone of the Earth, you know, all on and on it goes. Um, I do think, and I'm going to sound like the new age Gnostic nuts I've just announced. (laughs) It happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. (laughs) So anyway, um, I I do think that, that behind these, these tales of crystals, there has to be a reality. I do think these things exist, including the foundation stone of, of, you know, the earth. I think there's, there's some sort of literal seed of truth to all of them. And that includes the Emerald Tablet of, of, of Tehuda. Um, what I, I'm going to speculate now and say, I suspect that all of these independent little bits of lore might actually be fragments of one tradition concerning one sure object or at least one class of objects that's my that's been my suspicion all along um here is uh oswald spengler letting us know (laughs) that we can find out about fitzgerald and gould through trine day publishing okay video interviews so after that let me scroll down here there's uh, more than there's multiple comments about you know what the Vatican knows and is hiding about all of this that we've been talking about. Um, well, it's it's easy to pick on the Vatican. Um, I what I what I suspect is that if there's anybody at the Vatican that knows things that they're not keeping, it's it's you have to look deeper than just saying the Vatican. I think you have to look at the cardinal archivists of the Vatican archives. And in particular, you have to look very carefully at particular cardinals that have been the the archivists of the Vatican. I, I can think of one in particular that sends my suspicion needle into the red zone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was... He was um, a French cardinal by the name of Eugène Cardinal Tisserand. Uh, really interesting dude. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Nick Nick N asks, have you run across mention of liquid crystal matrices applications or only solids? Uh, hmm. yeah. it, it depends on what you mean by run across, Nick. If you're ta- if you're saying run across in terms of esoteric lore, no, most of that lore gives you the impression that they are talking about solid, you know, rock crystals. Um, some of the speculation, some of the things that are said 
in those uh, little bits of lore or ancient text about crystals strongly suggest to me that the only way that you could make a crystal like that work would be in a liquid crystal form. So the times that I'm talking about liquid crystals in conjunction with some of these things, it's because it's the only way I can rationalize something like what they're describing working. Uh, I hope that answers adequately what you're, what you're asking. Pepe Le Pew Pew clarifies he was referring to the Crystal City being the New Jerusalem in connection with spirit, three and one or X and one. Remember the whole thing about the the Crystal City being kind of a, uh, a yeah. an analogy to the human brain. Yeah. Um, Mind. I again, Pepe, you're going to have to spell out your analogy. I'm just not. I'm. Give me more details of of what you're thinking and asking the question. I I simply don't know enough about what you're what you're trying to get at um Car carlos strubel asks what do you think was in the ark of the covenant was it uranium oh, or something uh we're told what was in it uh if you look carefully in the bible what was placed in the ark of the covenant was precisely the tablets of the covenant now interestingly enough when the tradition is that when Moses comes down the mountain initially with the, the tablets of the covenant, that those tablets were inscribed on, here it comes, folks, sapphire. So in other words, the same stone was used to carve the covenants as in Hebrew tradition was the foundation stone of the universe and the stone on, on Solomon's ring. It's sekthia, the Hebrew word for a sapphire. Now, I find that incredibly interesting because sapphire is nothing but corundum, aluminum oxide, okay? So in other words, it's the very same type of uh, alloy, crystal alloy, as a ruby. Rubies are also corundum. The difference in color in a sapphire and a ruby. A ruby's red color comes from the presence of chromium. A sapphire's different color. Sapphires come in all sorts of colors, but we usually associate blue with sapphire. And that depends, the color of a sapphire depends on the trace elements found in the sapphire during its, its formation. Rubies and sapphires are the second hardest objects on the most scale after diamond. So you're dealing with incredibly hard crystals. They're harder than quartz. Okay? But the fact that they put an object of sapphire inside the ark, which, you know. Ah, but remember the, the original tablets of Moses he destroyed. And then the recarved tablets are what's in the ark. Are they granite? Uh, probably. I, I, I would think some sort of crystal bearing could and and that would contribute to the ark having yeah. been a communication device Possibly. a radio to god as belloc says in raiders of well the yeah ark. it's it's a um you know you look at the, you look at the ark of the covenant and the, and the descriptions of how it's constructed and you're dealing mm -hmm. with you're dealing with a cavity mm -hmm. and you're dealing with pardon me <coughs> you're dealing Question. with thank you you're dealing with something, uh, Carla, that was constructed in layers, please note now, layers of 
dielectric material and metal. Dielectric and metal. So in other words, it's both linear and nonlinear material layered in its construction. So that means it's a capacitor mm -hmm. and it will build up an enormous static voltage charge, which is why you have them carrying it around on poles and not touching the dang thing. Yeah. Because build up enough charge in it and you touch it and you, you ground it and you're dead. And in the spirit of what we talk about here in this, I call it a series now, our trans-temporal cosmic uh, discussion, now we can think of, I never thought about this before, one, maybe one can look across time and space by peering into the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant itself or what appears between right. the, the, the cherubim on top. It could be a trans-temporal device. I'm just saying. Well, it's interesting in terms of the trans-temporal device to remember that there is one cherub that covereth that's missing. There's only two. There's supposed oh. to be three. Why Why is the third one missing? Well, the third one is Lucifer. Oh. Oh. I didn't this, know that. Oh, okay. yeah. There's all this stuff that interconnects here, folks. Okay. Yeah, there's all sorts of interconnecting stuff. Johann Wolf referring to what you said, how we are that thing between the the incorporeal and the material, says it's not death because astral travel is real. No, I, Johann, I think what he's saying is the process of death, what happens in death is this encoded thing. Uh, uh, of course, we are not physical beings. So yeah, there's what you're going to call astral travel. But what you think of astral travel, correct me if I'm wrong here, Joseph, or maybe you see it in a different uh, perspective. Um, what we're calling astral travel may not be what we in the popular, you know, spiritual new age community thinks it is. I am going to say that, um, no, if you're playing around with projecting yourself outside your body, I would again caution you not to do such practices. Is it possible to do that? Yes. But I'm coming from a very old tradition, an, an old Christian tradition that warns constantly against practicing such things. Because the ultimate result can be that you will lose yourself what you are literally doing is you are playing around with the phenomenon of death itself. Mm -hmm. Death is the separation of the soul and the body. And you can, by projecting it, make it impossible to come back to and allow your body to be filled by something else. And trust me, you don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. So again, consider yourself warned. In no uncertain terms. <laughs> because on the theme of the show, you never know what's out there wanting to communicate with you. Bingo. Um, this Bingo. is why when you have a psychic telling you that so-and-so has contacted them, <laughs> they don't know that that's so-and-so. Yes, that's my problem there, right? Yes. And ding, so ding, don't, ding. don't get excited when... 
Yeah. You know, one of these people come along and tell you that your loved one or your friend who's gone or or your 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 beloved doggy is there. Right. Because um, it may not be not that the psychic's lying. The psychic might actually be thinking that right. what they're communicating with is your beloved doggy and your loved one. But yeah. that doesn't mean that's who and what it is. Yeah. It, the, the problem that we're having with all of this is is that people think that these things aren't real or not or are not possible. They are very real. Sure. And they're very possible. Yeah. The problem yeah. is, is it's too easy to be deceived in these things mm -hmm. because in a certain sense, we've lost the, the natural connection to these things. Right. You know, these, these things, the way I view them, Walter, you're probably thinking along the same lines. I view all of these things, remote viewing, astral projection, and so on. These are all inherently natural faculties and properties and abilities yes, of human I agree. nature. I agree. All of us. They are have part the, of this all in of there. us. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The problem is we've lost the ability to just to discern mm -hmm. their proper and and true place. That's right. And that I think, my friends, only comes through some spiritual discipline. And I'm not going to assume that I have that expertise. And I think few people in the modern world do, particularly those in our Western culture who have cut themselves off deliberately by rejection of the Christian Catholic tradition. And by Catholic, I don't mean papal. Right. Please understand that. Uh, you know, I can I can pull off articles from the Philokalia, an old set of monastic <laughs> writings in the Orthodox Church, and show you that they will tell you that all of these things are perfectly natural, but you don't seek them and you don't do them. And folks, whether you personally to subscribe to, to a this. particular religion or not, what what we're saying is. These Indeed. things, these phenomena, these uh, th this stuff is real. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> the different theological philosophies, the different theological analyses have their description of these things. Absolutely, they do. Yeah, you, can you find don't descriptions have descriptions to... of this. You can find descriptions of this in the Vedas and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. What I'm urging people is to quit thinking that everything but Christianity has anything to say about these things. That's the one religion that you're ignoring in this modern world. And that's the one religion that might help you deal with some of the things that are happening. The other ones are telling you, go out and do all of this stuff. Have your strange yoga, do your strange exercises, follow your Buddhist monks and have tulpas and so on. And then you wonder why you're getting poltergeists and everything else in your lives. Uh, there's, one yeah. tradition, there's one tradition telling you, don't do this stuff. Yes, it is natural to you, but you don't seek to do it. If it happens to you, mm. if it happens to you, that's a different matter. But yeah. you don't go out and seek it. I'm going to have to uh -uh. do a show on, on the activity that really happened a lot during my empire of the wheel investigation oh and boy all, and, yeah you told me about some of that and <laughs> and and all i was doing was doing what any investigator or journalist would yeah. do i wasn't out there doing no. you know magic or anything i was just looking at records and digging around and going out and 
going to places and there was all manner of poltergeist and, oh, yeah. and, and other people <laughs> were witnessing this. This wasn't yeah. just me. It's so not, I'll have yeah. to do a show on that. Definitely. Listen, Walter, do you, mm-hmm. do you remember the, um, the demon in the acre book? I have that long quotation in it mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. St. John of Damascus. Okay. Well, there's an interesting little thing that he says in there that kind of mm-hmm. encapsulates the attitude I'm trying to convey to people. Now, whether people believe me or not, and whether or not Johann Wolf wants to go on continuing to practice those things, that's up to you. I'm just doing my due diligence and duty to tell people beware. Whether yeah. they listen to me or not is up to them. Oh, I, I, but, I'm with you there. I always warn people. Yeah, always, always. But St. John says in that passage that these things, meaning the bodiless powers of heaven, the angels and the demons, he says very explicitly, these things cannot be contained by seals. What's he talking about? Hmm. He's talking precisely about all of those pentagrams and other seals that a ceremonial magician draws on the floor with their blue chalk and thinks that that is going to keep that entity inside that little circle. No way. (laughs) He's saying, "Uh uh-uh, ain't going to happen like that. No. So, you know, that's all I'm saying. Folks, just please don't play with this stuff. Just don't. Be don't very, very, Be very, very wary, careful. very careful. Yeah. And uh, well, hey, Joseph, we're at the two hour mark. I want to thank you for thank uh, you. taking the time to be here. Another great conversation, which, you know, well, it, I hope it so. let us let us down some enlightening uh, uh, avenues there. And uh, I look forward to having you on again. So all right. Thank you. Let's, let's make this happen. Thanks again. Yeah, my pooch is saying, take me outside now. Okay. Okay, Shiloh. See you later. All right. All Joseph. Thanks again. Okay, folks. Well, uh, again, I want to thank Joseph. I want to thank all of you in the live chat. Excellent questions. We had a, um, a pretty good size number of viewers today, as we always get when Dr. Farrell is here. And uh, again, I want to reiterate, um, you, you, you don't have to subscribe to any particular religion um, to understand that, that what we're saying is these things, these phenomena, these entities, we believe them to be real. I know what I've encountered. I believe it's real. Um, I'm convinced. And um, whatever tradition you subscribe to, just keep that in mind um, because you never know what's trying to communicate with you, okay? Um, On the one hand, it could be harmless, you know, we come in peace. On the other hand, it could be Captain Howdy coming at you through the Ouija board. You just don't know. And just keep it in mind and be careful. So, um, that's it for today's live stream, and uh, I will see you again on, on Friday with Malia Grimm. She'll be back, and uh, we have a special activity going on this weekend. Um, uh, speaking of the things that I just warned you about, um, <laughs> we're going to the Palomar Inn this weekend on a haunted ghost tour, and uh we will keep in mind to be very careful 
what we do um, this weekend. But we'll be live Friday night, probably from a hotel. No, from here. From here. We'll be live from here. Um, and uh, uh, we haven't decided what we're going to talk about yet. And you'll find out when we appear Friday night. So thank you all. And we'll see you in a couple of days.